Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come to study and see what your word has for us. Lord, we, these verses as we look at the kingdom of heaven and, and how you describe it to us to try to help us to understand it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure in a field, the which when a man has found, he hides and for joy therefore goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant seeking goodly pearls, who when he has found the one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it ashore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels and cast the, poor, the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? And they said unto him, Yes, Lord. Then he said unto them, Therefore every scribe which is, instruct, is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. So we got a lot here, and we'll see if we can finish all of this. Uh, we look at the first description of the kingdom of heaven. Well, actually the second, because it's talked about before that, the, the field being harvest, uh, sown with the seed. But we look at this, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure in a field, which when a man has found it, he hides it for joy. Therefore, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There are a lot of people who want to tell you that this is man seeking for God's truth, and I don't, I don't believe that. I believe it is God who is the person who is seeking the, the field, he finds the treasure, and the treasure is mankind. And he sells all that he has. Jesus literally died so that the kingdom of heaven could be established through his death. And it, I'm not, I'm not going to disavow the application of the other one, that we should be going out, and when we find good things in God's word and good things in God, that we should go out and sell everything. But we see in each one of these parables that we've gone into the sower was God the the, uh, the the seed that was planted was God who planted that seed so I believe that this is still talking about God because of the context of the whole chapter and this is one thing that's important when we interpret anything to do with scripture that we look upon the context and say what has been being talked about and say it is probably still being talked about unless it becomes very clear that it's not being talked about that. And I've read commentaries. Commentaries hate this scripture because they say this is bad. You know, the guy, the integrity of the person is if they found something, should tell the owner and not, not cheat the owner by buying it. And it's probably true that if you found something, you're kind of taking advantage of the owner by buying their field at a, for a song when you know that it's worth a lot more. But in this story, I believe it is God. He has searched over the world, which man sold to Satan and he says I found a treasure and I'm going to buy that treasure and it cost him dearly to buy the treasure in this world Jesus came and he paid a price that is phenomenal one is one to me that is just so amazing that he was willing to pay that Jesus came and died for man's sin so that he could redeem us and I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. It makes no sense, really, when you think about it. You know, what did he see in us? And yet we look at a verse like this, and he, said he saw some treasure. 
some treasure that when he bought us, he decided that we were worth the investment. And I don't know what it is because we don't have anything for him, but he gets to clothe us in righteousness. He gets to give us everything. He gives us the rewards that we're going to get, and he's the, he's the one that does the work through us so that we get the rewards in the first place. So that we can praise him for the rest of eternity because of all that he has done. And it's just an amazing thought when you think about it. We have nothing to give to God, and yet he has given everything. And what he sees in us, I don't really understand and I can't and I've never seen any satisfactory answer in any message or commentary that I've had what does God see in us that makes it worth giving all for but he sees something he created man with a purpose what that purpose was again who knows because man turned around and sinned and he knew he was going to have to redeem him and he knew man that was going to sin in the first place when he created man so we see this this very interesting plot that God has. I'm going to create man, they're going to sin, I'm going to buy them back. And I'm going to find, I'm going to de determine that it was worth buying them back. That for some reason he loves us with such great love that it, he doesn't re see the cost as being that great, even though it was everything. And we think back like somebody like Ruth and Boaz. Now if you read that story, it's one of the greatest love stories that, that has ever existed. Ruth comes back with, Boaz, uh, with Naomi to, and make God her, her God and, and the Israelites her people. And if you, when you read it, it's like you, you see Boaz coming out to inspect the field and his question is, who is that girl out there? And you know his question isn't just, who is that person out there? It, you know, she has caught his eye <laughs> as you read further into the story. And it's like, who is that out there? Uh, and I'm sure it was the undertones of, who is that good looking girl out there that has really caught my eye, and he fell in love instantly. Same story we get when uh, Isaac is first seen by his future wife. He goes, who is that man out there <laughs> sitting out there in the field? She fell instantly in love with him, at, in love at first sight. And you know, kind, of, can kind of imagine, she was wondering, you know, who is this guy that I'm going to go see? You know, why couldn't he come out here and, and find, you know, show up? Uh, you know, for all she knew, she was marrying the ugliest man in the world, <laughs> although all she knew that he had was money. And so, but we see God saying, these people are worth everything. And I am amazed. I'm, I'm glad that he did. <laughs> I'm glad that he did this for us. But it's just an amazing thought to me. And, you know, amazing to me how little we ne necessarily care for the, for the lost world and how much God cares for the lost world. And how we need to be very motivated to bring the lost to him because of how much it cost him. The cost of our salvation. And it's marks that he will bear into eternity in the future because in Revelation it tells us that Jesus appears as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and he's the only thing in heaven that's going to have any marred, human marred action to it. All the rest of us will be totally renewed and clothed in the Christ's righteousness. And he's going to bear the marks of what it costs to bring us there. Aren't we glad that he's going to take away the tears from our eyes? Because I don't know how we could be able to bear seeing him even in heaven and seeing the cost, it, what it costs for us to be there. It's going to be a very amazing thing. And yet, 
he holds that dear and will hold it dear. You know, at that time, we'll hold it dear that he, he decided he loved us that much. And it's an amazing thing. And he says he sold all just so he could buy the, the treasure hidden in the field. And, you know, this is something interesting. You know, why, you know, why would there be a treasure in the field and all of this? Well, until recently, most people hid their money in, in the cans and out in the yard or under the mattress of the bed or wherever because, you know, for the most part, there either were no banks or they didn't trust banks. So it wasn't unusual for people to hide their treasure in a field and forget where it was. <laughs> you know, uh, have you ever put something away for safekeeping and then forgotten where you put it? Uh, I did that with the letters for the, for the way of the master. I put them away and I'm going, <laughs> I know where they are now. I just remember where they are now. I, I actually told Amy so I'd know where they were. I put them with the, bull, the bulletins. <laughs> Uh, but I put them away. I put them where they wouldn't be in the way and, and they'd be out of the way. And then I went to go find them the following week. I'm going, where did I put these things? And I don't need them for seven more weeks, but where did I put these things? And, uh, but I've done that before. I put things away and then didn't find them for months or years, you know, because I put them away so well that I didn't remember where I put them. And this is why the treasure in the field would be. You know, they took their treasure, they buried it. The, the you know, pirates buried their treasure, and they really did bury their treasure because there was no place else to put it, so they would bury it. And we see this all through time, that people have buried what's important to them, usually with some kind of map or something to tell them where it's at. And here he says, the man finds this in the field. And he goes and he buys this field. God put the treasure here in the first place. He created man. Man sold the dominion of this world to Satan when, they, when he sinned, and Jesus bought it back. It's quite a powerful message when you, when you think about this. Then it goes, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant who is seeking good pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And pearls, you know, well, how big a pearl is, it? is the pearl of great price? I have no idea. But it is something, a pearl is a pretty... In, genius invention it starts with a grain of sand and an oyster and it gets the pearl wrapped around it around the grain so that it starts with an irritation and but again it's God seeking something and he seeks us he seeks us and why he seeks us I don't know with the irritant to him on one side and he wraps us up in his righteousness so that he can be with us Yeah, in his joy. Yeah, so I didn't bring that out. Yeah. Made him happy to do that. It says that it pleased God to bruise his son so that we could get our redemption. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure that's not, you know, he was very happy about it, but he saw the result of his son taking the bruise, you know, being killed. Just as when bad things happen to us or what we think are bad things happen to us, God knows that they're not bad, they are for good. We look at it and say, this is terrible, I don't want to go through this, but usually when we look back on it, we look back on some of the things that when we were going through it were the hardest thing to go through, and we look back and saying, yes, that drew me closer to God, yes, that prepared me for other things that God's doing. And we look back on those things and say, Yes, I understand. 
and God has joy in putting us through it because he knows the benefit later on down the road. He knows that it will draw us closer to him in the long run. He knows that it will prepare us for deeper issues later on. Uh, just as when you're into athletics and sports, you, you start trying to build your muscles and you have to use a, a weight that is actually significant enough to make your muscles sore. And literally, it tears the muscles and then they repair themselves in a stronger band and then you go back out another couple days later and tear your muscles again and, and it repairs them. You know, not tear, you know, not rip, you know, rip them or shreds, but you tear them a little bit and they get repaired and they get repaired and they get bigger and stronger. And it, the pain is in the long run worth it. Back in the days when I ran, I used to love to run and get to that place where you'd have to push through all the pain and, the, and when you're ready just to quit and you push through it and then the endorphins kick in and you just have that you know, euphoria that hits and, and you can run another you know, long period. You got that second wind and everything. Yeah, it was just worth it. When you're playing sports, when you dig down just a little deeper to, to take just a little more out. And this is what all of these pains are all about. God says, I've got something more for you. I want you to take the next step. I want you to take the next level. But to get there, you don't just jump to the next level. You have to prepare yourself to be there. You, you don't you know, start out lifting, lifting uh, three-pound barbell and then jump to, a, to, a, to 150 pounds the next day uh, unless you want to totally rip your muscles and not be able to do anything for a while. But you build up to it. You build, and God builds us up to the trials. And yes, it's for joy. And it kind of sounds strange. You know, he, he, he sold everything. He gave everything for joy. And it's the same thing that, that the pearl of great price. He sold everything because he was pretty excited. He found something that was of great price. And again, this is one that's used very clearly of us sometimes. You know, the application oftentimes is toward humans, even though the context here is God. He sold everything for the, for the pearl of great price, the clothed in Christ's righteousness. For us, it could simply be, are we willing to give all for what God has in our desire? And when we dig into this word, we dig into God's way of thinking and acting. And it's amazing when we listen to God and we make the changes in our lives that is necessary. I don't know about you, but God has asked me to give up so many things in my life that have no value and you know, many times when he asks me to do it, I kind of look at him and say, there's no way I want to give this up. I really enjoy doing it. But you know, when I finally give it up, I find that I don't miss it because he replaces it with so much more than, than he took away. And we sit there and hold on to it sometimes really tight. And I heard, a, heard a, one description of a speaker saying, it's like the kid playing, playing in the mud out front of their house, and they're saying, well, we've got to go now. Well, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. Well, we're going to go to Disneyland. You know, but they're having so much fun with the mud that they don't want to go to something that is even a bigger treat. And we do this often with God. God, I just want to hold on to my sin or even a good thing that is not the best. Satan loves to get us stuck on, if he can't get us in sin, he'll get us busy doing good and not the best. But we look at this and say, you know, how many times do we get caught up in doing good? And we oftentimes will overlook the best. And I've seen it happen. I even got wrapped up in my younger days, doing so many good things 
that I didn't do anything well because I was too busy doing good things, doing the church, you know, doing all kinds of things in the church. I was doing, 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 and I never did everything, anything the way it needed to be done and probably didn't enjoy doing much of what I was doing because I was doing lots of good. And most Christians will get wrapped up in that at some point in their life with Christ. They get, they get wrapped up in just doing, well, I gotta, I've been bad for so long, I just got to go do good things. And I've been a very big advocate of God has called every one of us to do something. Whatever it is he's called us to do, we need to do that with our whole heart. And one thing I am a full-blown believer in is if you're doing what God has asked you to do, you're going to be happy doing what you're going to do, and it won't seem like a burden. It'll just be, I'm serving. And I've shared with you all, when I first came out here from College Park, everybody kept telling me how busy I was and everything, and I never felt like I was busy. I enjoyed everything that I was doing. It wasn't until I was transitioning out of the church to come here that I'm going, oh, yeah, I am the one that opens the doors in the morning. I am the one that closes the doors when it goes out. I'm the one that makes sure that all the air conditioning is on in the summer and, and this is done and that is done and you know, doing this. You know, and I started looking at everything I was doing. I'm going, I really am busy, but I never felt busy because I was doing what God had called me to do. And I was gifted in the areas of what I was doing. And it ended up taking lots of people to replace me because not any one person wanted to do everything that I had done. So in one sense, it was good because now instead of one person doing it all, there were five or six people being active in the church. And this is very important for us to keep in mind. If we're doing something that we're not called to, the person who is called to it is going to look and say, well, I must not be hearing God because they don't need me doing that job. And I am a believer that I would rather have nobody doing a job if they're not called to it so that the right person, when God brings them in, is there to do the job. And I've seen it happen. You know, I've seen it happen in Sunday schools where somebody has just been stuck in there who's, who's a substitute for a period of time. And then the right person comes along and they go, oh, I thought I was supposed to, you know, I really like teaching the thir- third grade, but you've got to teach you. You don't need me. And then they kind of drift off somewhere else. And the third grade teacher was just there filling the gap. And you know, we need to be very careful about that. And there's times when the gap has to be filled, you know, possibly, but not always. And we need to know what has God called us to do. People who love to serve just need to be servants, whether that's a deacon or whatever it might be, they just to serve. If you're called to be a teacher, you teach. You know, whatever it might be that you do, you don't do it just because it has to be done. Because that's not the right motivation of it. Even though it's a good thing, it's not the right motivation for it. And we, and we need to see that going forward. And then in verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that is cast out into the sea and gathers every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels and cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angel shall go forth and whosoever... the and so ever the wicked from among the just and shall cast, aside, cast them into the furnace of fire and there should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is another picture of the weed and the tares. The net is cast, the gospel net is cast into the sea and it just pulls all kinds of things into it. All kinds of things into it. And remember the first one was the good seed and the, bad, you know, the good seed being sown and 
about 25% of it was what was good and the rest you know, snatched away on the hard ground and, the, and didn't grow because of the, the weeds and didn't grow because of the, the hardness of the soil. Uh, and so this is the same picture. Same picture as the tares, the weed and the tares grow up and are separated. And it's also the same picture as the seeds sown in the field, which is the world, that good will come out of it and the rest will be cast aside. And we see this whole thing. The gospel reaches out. Our job when we give the gospel is not to try to figure out who needs to hear the gospel. Our job is just to tell the gospel to as many people as we possibly can. And then let God sift out what happens from it. He's the one that will determine are they true wheat or are they tares that look like, look like wheat but are, are not. And that will be determined at the judgment when God brings the end days. And there are two judgments ahead. The one for Christians, the Bema Seat of Christ, where he will take Christians and judge our works. He'll put our works into the fire and see what remains. And remember, we, our sins are covered because of the righteousness of Christ, and he throws in our works and sees whether they're wood, hay, and stubble or silver, gold, and fine jewels. And the, what, will work, what will hold out is what he has done in us. The whole idea for us is our works will be burnt up. And I've always, and I was just, always considered wood, hay, and stubble is what works I do in my flesh. Because stubble is that stuff that's just plain worthless. You can't use stubble for much of anything. Hay, you can use hay for different things. It's, it makes food for animals. You make bricks out of it, you know, at least in their day. And wood, you make substantial buildings or anything out of, out of wood. But you know, when it's our works, what is wood to me as a teacher, if I'm teaching out of my own flesh and it's wood, it's good. Other people might get gold or silver from it because it is strong and, and scriptural. So it'll burn up for me and be a reward for somebody else. Okay, so we can do things in our flesh that will burn but will help others get benefit from. But we look at this and we as Christians will have our works. And you know, Jesus isn't trying to punish us. He's not going to tell us, well, you're such a loser. Look at everything that was burnt up. He's going to say, look at all that's left. This is what you let me do for you. Now, some people are going to go to the Bema seat and they're going to come out with Jesus Christ's righteousness. And it's what it says. They come out as by fire. They don't have any rewards. They didn't live for God. They didn't serve God, but they are saved. Now, it's hard to imagine that, but they are saved and they will come with little to no rewards. There are going to be others that come out with lots of rewards because they've done just what God told them to do. And some people are going to come out with rewards that we have never even thought of. The, the, the person who was just the prayer warrior in the church that never did anything phenomenal that people saw, but everything moved because of their prayer, are going to have great reward. Sometimes we look at people that are in front of the church teaching or singing and, and doing their leading, and we go, look at all the rewards they're going to have. Well, maybe, maybe not. Depends on, is it in their strength, or is it God's anointing that brings out their rewards? If it's anointed and God is doing it, it will be rewarded. If it's just their strength, it won't be rewarded. And for those of us who are preachers and teachers, sometimes we teach and preach without the anointing of God because... It's Sunday, we're expected to be there and we're expected to teach. And, I, and I've done that many times in my lifetime where it's, okay, I've just got to do it because 
<laughs> this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm the teacher today. I have to have a, a lesson ready. Not often, but it does happen. And th those days, people may get a lot out of it, because I do spend a long time reading and studying and all of that. So others may get a lot out of it, but it's not necessarily anything I'm going to get rewarded for. And we need to keep in, in mind, that is our judgment. That is where we're going to be. We're going to be judged there, and God's going to say, here are your rewards. And you know, the one thing we definitely want to hear is, enter good and faithful ser servant, enter into my, into the, in my joy. And I'm looking forward to I want to hear that. Anything else, he can keep everything else. Just say, welcome, good, good and faithful servant. And I want to be that faithful servant for him that has done the best I can, allowed him to work through me. And the glorious thing would be to hear that. And just to know the little things that we do. And I've said this over and over again. What do we do that is going to re get rewarded? might just be the smile we have on our face when we see somebody and just smile at them. And they're having a really bad day and nothing seems to be going right. And they go, oh, at least somebody's having a good day. And maybe it'll rub off on them. You know, it, works. Mm -hmm. it might just be that little cup of cold water you give them that refreshes them. The little drop of edification that you bring into their life. And say, so, you know, I just like seeing you because you're, you've got a smile. You, you, you're, you're following Christ. I just like... I, I enjoy the spirit that you have around you. And we'd be able to just touch people in little ways. The times when we didn't have the time to do something, but yet we stopped and gave the person a ride or a jump start or, or a buck or two. And it doesn't mean every time we give a buck or two to somebody who's banging is going to be rewarded. But if God says do it and we do it, God's going to say, here is the reward. Here is the reward for what you've done very critical that we do little things. And when you read the stories, when you hear testimonies, oftentimes they bring up the little things that people have done that have drawn them to Christ. The faithfulness they see somebody. This person always goes to church. I don't understand it, but they always go there. I don't know how you could always go to church. But it impresses them that there's something there that they think is, you're kind to them and it's consistent. You're not judging them for the things they've done like so many people do to them. You're, you're just ready to give them a little help, a little encouragement. I believe those little rewards are what we're going to be really shocked by. You know, not the times we stood up in front of a group and, and gave a message or a lesson. Not the times that we stood up front and sang or whatever it might be that we did. Maybe not even the times that we spent cleaning the church, you know, even though it needed to be done. Now, many of those are behind the scenes and will be rewarded because they're just a kindness that's done for God's service. But God could also say, well, I had other plans for you. You should have been doing something else. And we look at this. What is important? What does God say is important? And how are we reaching out to the people through what he asks us to do? And it can be something simple. The song that I like that I talk about often is Thank You. And it says, I dreamed I went to heaven. You were there with me. And it talks about all these people coming up and saying thank you. Thank you for the time you taught in Sunday school. I came to Christ because of that. Thank you for the time that you just gave a little bit of money to the missionary. And that money is why I'm here because he stayed on the field. And I, and I was reached because of that little money that you didn't think was important. 
the little gifts that we give. We never know what is going to be a blessing to somebody. Uh, heard heard a story that you know secondhand about this missionary couple that you know needed some kind of uh, incubator system, you know, for a kid who was being born, and and so they prayed for you know for hot water bottles or incubator or something to come in the next box, and the little girl, the missionary family, and put a doll in it. You know, and what did they get? They got the hot water bottles or the incubator to help save the baby, <laughs> and they had a doll at the bottom of bottom of the of the box yeah which meant that that prayer was answered months before the event why just so that little girl could see the power of God and how much he cared for them uh, when I was a teenager we sent a box to missionaries in Finland and we put all kinds of stuff in it but one person brought a case of peanut butter to put in it and everybody was laughing at this person they go no God told me to bring a case of peanut butter and you know, when we got the letter back from Finland, the only thing they really talked about out of all the stuff in the box was the case of peanut butter. And they, really, they go, you don't understand, peanut butter cost an equivalent of $20 a, a jar out here. We don't buy peanut butter because we can't afford <laughs> peanut butter. So they put in something like a buck and a half, two bucks a jar, and it turned out to be the greatest blessing to these missionaries. Again, the point being, what do we do that is so simple that we don't even think that is important and yet it's a blessing to somebody that God says this is a great blessing, a great honor and pearl. And we're going to see this whole point. The net is cast. They gather in everybody and then the angels will sort out between the Bema seat and the white throne judgment. Christians don't stand before the white throne judgment because we are already judged at the Bema seat. Every single person that stands at the white throne judgment is going to hell. That's something different I never thought about before. The angels separating. Well, that's what it says there. Yeah. And he talks about them separating, the, you know, for, forcing them and throwing them into hell in many places. So the angels have a part in that <laughs> separation. Well, I'm sure God tells them exactly. But, well, by the time they see us, they know who it is. From the spiritual world, you're clothed in Christ or you're clothed in your own, uh, your own good works of righteousness, which are filthy rags. It won't be hard. It won't be hard for them to, okay, you over here, you over there. That seems like such a menial task for a God that knows and does everything, you know. Yeah. Sorting, sorting people out. It's a large crowd. But when they stand in front of the white throne judgment, they are guilty. And God will show them why they're guilty. And how many times they heard the message. And it says nobody will be without um, having heard. They will all have heard the message in somehow, some way, and made a choice against God. When they go to hell, they will know they're there because they chose it. And that will be part of the curse of hell that conscience, the, the fact that you're there because you chose to be there. And you'll remember the last thing you saw was every time you denied Jesus and your conscience will burn and, con and con corrupt you for the rest of eternity. And if you've ever been bothered by your sin that you've committed and, and, had, and forced you to, re to repentance, think about not being able to get rid of that conscience that's bothering you. 
I believe that, yes. I believe that in hell that they are able to see like a one-way mirror. They're going to see what they are. Now, I have no proof of that. It's just other than the rich man looking up and seeing Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham because I'm not one that buys into this. Hell was broken into two categories. I think he actually looked into heaven because heaven was considered by the Jews to be the bosom of Abraham. So uh, I've never seen that as a... Two compartment. Okay. Uh, I've never seen it as a two compartment thing like the majority of people. And again, it's one of those places where I hold a minority. I'm not the only one that believes that it wasn't a two compartment. Uh, but it is definitely the minority viewpoint. But and I use that as, as a foundation for my belief that, people, that hell gets to see what they are missing. You got your conscience bothering you for eternity, and you get to see what you didn't, what you're missing. It would be terrible. It would be a terrible, terrible pain. Plus, it's fire and all the other, all the other stuff that goes along with it. Now, I'm not. You know, if somebody wants to tell me, no, you, you know, they're not going to see into heaven. I'm not going to argue with them because I have no, no scriptural proof other than the one story of the rich man and Lazarus that I interpret. You know, that I uh, extrapolate to that that belief. It's still bad. Just the conscience for eternity is bad. It's a long time to be stuck with a conscious eating at you. It's a long time knowing that you're in pain because you chose to be there. We won't have any concept of time, but do you suppose they will? Probably. Probably we probably will have a conscious of time, but not time as we know it, because in Revelation it tells us that the tree of life produces fruit in each season, and this is in heaven as well. But time is different in heaven. It's not going to be our time that we know of. You know, 24 hours, 365 days a year will be whatever time is in the dimension of. Uh, because it, we're told that there's some form of time, there's some form of seasons, because the tree of life produces a different fruit in each of its seasons and months. So there is some form of time in heaven, but not the time that we're <laughs> used to. And I don't believe it's analogy. I believe dimensionally God is in a different dimension, heaven's in a different dimension, and then God's above that dimension, so there will be some form of time. And it won't be the same time that we have. It would not be. Uh, and I've shared with you, I kind of have this picture of all people on this earth entering into heaven seconds apart <laughs> because there's a different time frame. And our 6,000 years might just be minutes to in heaven or an hour in heaven. And I kind of picture this, you know, great-grandpa's up there, and the next thing, you're popping there, and he's looking at you. What are you doing here? Well, it's been, it's been 100 years since you, you know, since you were on the No, It's only been... That's my picture of heaven, because it takes care of all the idea of soul sleep and, and the long delay of everything that we normally have. Now, that's just because of the way I foresee dimensions and, and physics and everything. Uh, could it be right or wrong? I don't know. It's just my personal belief. Uh, and it takes, apart, it takes away a lot of the issues of the time distortions and stuff that we have. 
But then it says, they cast the, the wicked into the furnace of fire, and they shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the picture of hell over and over and over again. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, yeah. It's every time they describe hell, that's what they're they cast into the fire. They will be wailing, screaming in pain, and gnashing of teeth. They're grinding their teeth because of the pain. And in other places, we're told that the worm turns, which is which I've been taught and I believe is the conscience that will keep turning on you for the rest of your eternity. Worm, the conscience turning, uh, digging deep kind of a poetic term and it's kind of, if you think about it when your conscience is bothering it is kind of like a a worm consuming you and 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 devouring and so hell has this picture of i know that i'm there for because of my choice and i'm guilty for the rest of my life and my conscience is going to bother me for the rest of my life there's literal flames and fires that are causing wailing and then that gnashing and grinding of the teeth because there's so much pain going on now, hell is not a pretty place, and it is a real place, and it is eternal. A lot of Christians will try to go, well, it's just a quick punishment. You go there, and then you're annihilated. No, it is eternal. We are created as eternal beings forward, not eternal backwards, but eternal forward. When we're born, we are eternal into the future. Whether we go to heaven or hell, we have an eternal life or an eternal existence. Hell will not be life. Hell will be the ultimate of you wish you could die. Uh, and this is why when, when we think about this, this is probably should be our greatest motivation to witness is that if they go, if they die without having heard the gospel from us they, and they die without accepting the gospel, they're going to hell for eternity. We need to be, use that as our motivation. This is why we should share with our families. We should at least love our families well enough to want them to go to heaven and avoid hell. And should maybe love some of our friends that much. But you know, it also should motivate us to witness to strangers because hell is so awful that we shouldn't want to see anybody go there. It's kind of like I suffer from gout pain and I would never wish the pain of a gout attack on anybody. It is that severe, it is that painful and yet, I'd rather have a gout attack than be in hell. Even though it is totally painful, I know that the gout attack is going to run its course at some point. Hell will not. And we need to use that as our motivation. Hell is real. Hell is an eternal place. And we need to be able to use that as our motivation to share the gospel with people. Because... I heard the message, and it was called a hallmark message from it, and it was the great white throne judgment, and he, called, and he says, people are going to stand up there, and there's going to be people standing before the white throne. They're going to look around at the Christians and say, why didn't you tell me? I kind of picture that going to be the case. Why didn't you tell me about this, this event? You're sitting over there. You knew him, and you didn't tell me. Can you imagine how that would feel? How will it feel just looking, even if they don't say something to you? You've got a friend or a loved one standing out in the white throne before the white throne judgment headed to hell, and you never shared the gospel with them? You might have been just the person that needed to do it. 
Did they hear? Absolutely. Somebody's going to tell them. But there are certain people that we are the best qualified person to share the gospel with. And we don't know who those are until we actually try to share the gospel. We need to be able to share the gospel with people. Not condemning, not in an accusatory way, but just because we're motivated by love that we want to see them not go to hell. And when we are motivated by love, it will touch people. And we all know what it's like to be corrected by somebody who loves you. And it's gentle, even though you don't necessarily want to hear it. You know they're doing it because they care, generally care for you. And we also know what it's like to be you know, uh, corrected by somebody who doesn't love us. They're just in our face trying to make us feel bad you know, and, and, and make us feel down on the dumps. And we know the difference. When we're giving the gospel, we need to be that person that loves them so much that we care. They may not want to hear the message, but we're going to give it to them because they need to hear the message in a very gentle, loving way. And make it clear, hell is a real place. And, you know, I've had people go, well, you're just trying to scare me into heaven and out of hell. I'm going, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I do not make any bones about it. Now, will I try to scare kids into heaven? No, because I don't want to do that. I don't want them to make decisions based on being scared. Will I tell them that hell is a real place? Yes, hell is a real place. Am I going to sit there and describe it to them? Not necessarily, depending on how old they are. But when it comes to adults, if I scare them out of hell and into heaven, it does not bother me to do that. Spurgeon talks about scaring people out of hell and into heaven. You know, Wesley Brothers did the same thing. Uh, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, all the great evangelists have talked about the whole idea of if I can scare them out of hell and into heaven, so much better. It doesn't matter how they get there as long as they get there. And if they're going to do it because they're afraid, praise God. And that's the whole gospel. You've sinned, you deserve hell, you deserve this punishment. And it is eternal. If we soften it up into, well, it's just, you know, for a short period of time and then you're annihilated, well, what's the big terror on it? It doesn't really matter. You know, that's, the, that's the message of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, if you miss it, you just get annihilated because God will punish you for, life, you know, for the rest of eternity. Well, who cares if I miss it then? I'm just going to cease being. That's what most of the world thinks anyway. You know, when you talk to the world, they believe, well, you know, you live this life, and after that, you're worm food. When you tell them you're going to be annihilated, oh, you suffer for a little while, and then you're annihilated, that's what you're telling them. This is all there is. Unless you're just good enough to earn heaven, all there is is this life. We need to be able to understand hell is real. And if it means scaring people into heaven, I'm all for scaring people into heaven. They're, but that's a hard way. I want to do it in love, because otherwise you're just can, you know, accused of being harsh and, and, and angry at people. You do it out of love. You know, I don't want to see this people where you're headed. And I want to see you go to heaven. I don't want to see you be punished for eternity. And eternity is a very, very, very long time to be punished for. And it's going to be what they choose. And you know, the good news is, is for us as Christians, once we have chosen God, we will not be sent away from him. And we will not make any decisions later on to not have eternal life. Because we have eternal life. And once we get our glorified body, sin is not an option. Same thing with the angels. At some point in time, the angels had a decision they could make. 
Where, how, when, I don't know. But a third of the angels chose to rebel, and two-thirds of the angels chose God. Now, their decision's made. <laughs> Just as we are making our decision on this world, we live you know, 50, 60, 80, 120 years, whatever it might be, we make our decision for eternity in a few short years. And we, once we've made that decision, it, we're stuck with it. Now, for us as Christians, we, we'll be glad to be stuck with our eternal destination. Those who have chosen hell will not be happy with the choice they made. And it's an eternal choice. Just a short period of time determines where you'll spend eternity. And we need to be able to share that gospel, the gospel with people. Because there's going to be that separation, that burning. Then Jesus asks an interesting question in verse 51. And Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? <laughs> and very interesting, they said to him, yea, Lord, or yes, Lord. <laughs> I don't think they understood everything that they had heard. Because they are going to struggle with this for a long time. Usually the disciples, you know, like most people, you, know, you train somebody, you go, do you understand? And they go, sure, I understand. <laughs> And you let them go do the job that you just trained them to do and watch them do everything wrong. When we're trained, we need to be able to learn to say, uh, I have perceived and understood your word, uh, heard your words, but I don't really understand them. Can we <laughs> do this again? And we see here, Jesus didn't tell them they didn't understand. But, he, but he, later on, he's going to tell you when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring back to remembrance all that I have taught to you. He will re have you remember it and teach, teach you. And so often, we even to this day, will hear the word of God. We'll be excited about what we hear. And if we remember just a small portion of it by the next day, sometimes we're very fortunate. If we've applied something that we learned, we're very fortunate because we really grabbed hold of it. Sometimes it takes many times to hear a message and finally respond. And, you know, and, I'm, and I know God understands that because I've commented how, as I'm going through the different books of the Bible, how sometimes it seems like I keep saying the same thing between classes because the same thing keeps getting repeated. God knows how thick-headed we are and how stubborn we are. <laughs> and he repeats the message over and over and over again so that we can try to get it through our heads and start living it. And I'm just as guilty as everybody else. It takes me a long time to learn this stuff. I'm getting better the more I've walked with God, the longer I've heard the stuff, the easier it gets to respond. But I'm still just as thick-headed at times. God, I just don't understand. I don't know if I want to believe this. And you file it back in the back of your mind until you hear it five more times. And all of a sudden it becomes something real to you. And here, the, he didn't tell the disciples, no, I don't think you understand. But you know, I kind of believe that they didn't understand. Because we have hard times understanding what he's been saying on this. So I'm sure the disciples just said, yeah, sure, guy. <laughs> yeah, we understand. <laughs> we, we, we heard your words. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not, basically they're saying, we're really not dumb. We don't, you know, the thing in the back of mind, I don't understand anything he said, but I don't want to be the one that, I don't want to be the one that admits that I don't know what he's talking about. And if you get a group of people, that's exactly what you get all the time. Nobody wants to be the one that says, hey, I didn't understand that. Can we go over it again? And then everybody, if you do have somebody that's that bold, the rest of the class go, yeah, glad. I'm glad somebody asked. <laughs> because they didn't understand either. And 
But Jesus didn't correct them. He didn't say, no, you didn't. You didn't understand this. But he went on, he goes in verse 52, and then he said unto them, unto every scribe which is instructed unto the heaven, the kingdom of heaven, is like unto a man that is a householder, which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. So he's going in here and he says, every scribe, and this is used in the more general sense, a scribe was somebody who was trained in the law of God. They understood, supposedly, the Old Testament and the Pentateuch. And he says, for everyone that's instructed in, in the law, in the kingdom, is like somebody who owns a house and brings forth from their treasury new things and old. This word for old in Greek is literally things from the beginning. All, everything back, all the way back to Genesis, things from the beginning, the truths that God has had from the beginning of time. And even before time, because all the truth is based in who he is. So it actually is truth from the very beginning of when God didn't even have a beginning, but goes back, because it is him. And then he goes, and they also bring forth new things. Have you ever been reading the word of God and had a new revelation of the truth given to you? It's not really new completely, but it's really new to you, and it has a freshness in it and you get excited about it. And hopefully when that happens, you go out and you tell people about it and say, hey, look, you know, this is what God just showed me, and I, it's really amazing. I've described it to the church as I'm reading the Bible. Sometimes I'll look and, and a verse will pop up in the scriptures, and, and I have fun with God when it happens. This verse kind of jumps off the page that I've never seen before, and, and I'll have fun with it. I'll literally ask God, God, when did you put that verse in there? I've never seen it before. Now, I know that the verse has always been there. I know that it's not a brand new verse in the Bible. But the Holy Spirit comes out and says, now is the time to pay attention to this truth. This one is for you today to pay attention to. Or he'll draw two or three verses together and say, this one, this one, and this one all say the same thing. And all of a sudden, you get that joy of a true, true fresh revelation of God's word. And the kingdom of heaven is just like that. We should be like that, grabbing hold of the old treasures, the truths that have been in existence for time immemorial. Jesus is the creator of this universe, and everything is created. He is the master. And then the new things and how he applies all this truth to us. And grab hold of both. And both are very valuable. And we share them with other people, because it says cast out, thrown out, brought out by them. You know, we need to be sharing what God is doing for us. Too many Christians are very timid about sharing the goodness of God. The greatest thing that I've always enjoyed in church is the testimonies. You know what God showed me this week? You know what God did for me this week? You know how God blessed me this week? And people share what God is doing, what God is sharing with them. My, my family can tell you, I used to do this all the time. I'd be studying and go, hey, you know, you know, William, Jonathan, Suzanne, Lynn, you know, Samuel, come over here. I've got something to really share with you because God just showed it to me. I would get excited about it and share with whoever was available. If they weren't available, I'd go share it at work when I went to work. You know, whatever it might be, I would share it with somebody because I got so excited about what God was sharing. Do we get that excited about God that we will make sure that we share with other people? Or do we just go, well, God, that's really wonderful. I really like it. Thank you for sharing it with me. You know, maybe we're really excited about it at that moment, but you know, we don't share it with anybody. 
And if we do that, we usually forget about it very quickly. You know, the advantage of sharing things that happen to you is that it keeps it fresh in your mind and it excites other people. But in the process of sharing it, you keep the excitement in yourself as well. You know what God did? God, God did this for me. He provided for me this week. You know, it was wonderful. Don't you think it was wonderful what God did? You're building up the person who's hearing. You're refreshing in your own, you're re rehearsing in your own mind what God is, which sticks it further into your mind so that when you have a bad time, you keep remembering what he's already done. And it's very valuable that we share. We talk to one another about what God has done in our life. And we just really lift other people up on it. All right, we're going to take this last piece because it's pretty interesting and it uh, well, shouldn't take too long. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue in so much that they were astonished and said, Whence has this man this wisdom and such and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and, and Joseph and Simeon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not here with us? Whence then has this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus goes back to Nazareth. And he starts teaching. And he teaches these wonderful truths, the, you know, the deep truths of God. And it says, how did he get so smart? How did he get this wisdom? How did he get these understanding? How is he doing all these miracles? And they, and they refer back to him. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? And Mary, his mother, she still lives here. She's right here with us. Well, offense means stumbling block in reality. It was a stumbling block to him because here was a kid that they watched grow up. They know that he hasn't gone to rabbinical school, and yet he's teaching very deep truths of God. It's a stumbling block. We don't understand how this little guy got this smart. Where did he get all this knowledge? And, you know, this is a problem that people have when they grow up in a church. Most young people end up having to leave the church that they grew up in to be seen as an adult and to be seen as somebody who knows something because when they're a young adult in a church that they grew up in, everybody, all the older people remember, oh, I remember you. You were the one that got into all the closets so that you could get into. You're the one that was playing in the, in the baptistry when, 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 you know, without day. You were the one that... Did this? You were the. They remember all the little troubles you got into as a curious child, all the foolish things you said, you know, as you grew up. And it's very hard for adults. And this is an encouragement for us as adults, as we see young people stepping up to start taking positions in the church, that we start giving them the honor that's due them as a young person who's grown up. Even for teenagers, teenagers can get that position where we say. You're honoring God. I want to see you, and I want to lift you up. And not push them down and try to remember this. And, and these people remember Jesus basically as that little boy. You know, this is just the carpenter's son. He was trained in carpentry. He didn't go to rabbinical school. How does he know the scripture so well? How was he doing these miracles? They didn't understand it. And this verse kind of indicates to us that Joseph may have been dead at this point in time because it says, is this not the carpenter's son? 
Okay? It's not a strong one, but a lot of people think that this is indicating by the way it's phrased that Joseph was dead. And then they go, and is not Mary his mother? Huh? That's the kind of idea because they name everybody else in the family except the daughters. Uh, and the idea is they would have named, isn't this Joseph's, Joseph's son? Now, it's not a hard proof, it's not, you know, but it is believed that Joseph died pretty early in these kids' life by most, most scholars. There's no proof to it, but he's never mentioned anywhere. And when Jesus is on the cross, he puts the care of Mary, his mother, into John's care, which indicates that Joseph's out of the picture. Now, why he didn't pick his brothers would have been because he cared about the spiritual side of things at the time. But we know that, jo we know that Joseph is dead by the crucifixion, and quite likely during this period of his ministry. It's basically irrelevant. Joseph is a stepfather. He's not the, he's not the, the father of Jesus. So he's basically irrelevant to the story other than the beginning of it when he keeps Mary and doesn't, doesn't have her executed for adultery, which was a great, you know, great place. And then it says that he's got, it names four brothers and it says, and sisters. This is one of our proof verses that Mary was not a virgin for her entire life. Now the Catholics will answer this and say these are Joseph's kids and not Mary's kids, and that Joseph had kids before, he, before they were married. But if you also read in Matthew, it said that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. So the Bible definitely clearly tells us that at one point they did have sex at least once in their married life. And if they had it once, I'm sure they had it more than once after Jesus was born. And these are probably Mary and Joseph's kids. They are the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so Jesus was not able to do anything. Why? Because the people did not believe that he was anything special. And this is something for us, and just the last thing I'll mention is, the hardest people for us to reach as Christians are our own families. Especially if you get saved, especially if you get saved later on in your life. Because they always say, well, I, re I know who you are. You're, you, you used to do this. You used to do that. And you're still that person. Yeah. And, or you're just going through a phase. And someday you'll outgrow it. <laughs> and it's very hard for us. It's not impossible. Because if you live a faithful Christian life long enough in front of your family, they start to realize this is real. And you might get a chance to witness and lead some of your family to the Lord eventually. You still pray for them. You still give those opportunities to witness when you can. But you pray that somebody's going to be the one that reaches them. And I saw in my family, my dad led many of our family all up and down with uncles and aunts and cousins. He led many of them to the Lord over the years. In his case, mostly because they saw the extreme change in his life. But I've had the chance to witness to some of them. I've, I've had opportunities to witness and share. Each one of my children said a prayer at home to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Not because we pushed it, because we were very careful not to push it. We, they, we wanted them to come to us. 
Now, they heard the gospel. They knew the gospel. We told them how important it was. But each one of them came to us and accepted Christ as their Savior. Not that we pushed it. So the hope for you is keep, keep sharing. Keep the little, little bits of sharing with your family. But be aware that it might be somebody else that brings your, 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 your kids, your, your grandkids, your nieces, nephews. You probably have a better chance with your grandkids and nieces and nephews than you do with brothers and sisters and, and, and that type. But the challenge for us is to minister. To minister to the, those in our family and to share the gospel and be able to minister to them. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you bless us. Lord, give us the desire to share you. Lord, put in our hearts the great picture of hell and the, the severity of hell so that we will be motivated to witness to people. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.